Today we're talking about the protests in Iran. What's true, what's false? We'll talk about a major media disinformation campaign such that it makes it almost impossible for people in the United States to actually understand what's going on in Iran. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show, or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We can't do this show without people subscribing to it. This is a collective effort. Please do your part and subscribe to the show. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we're talking with Mazda Majidi. Mazda is an educator, he's an author, a journalist, and he recently returned from Iran. Mazda, welcome to The Socialist Program. Uh, thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me on this program. Well, I wanted to talk to you, Mazda, because I had an opportunity to have a brief conversation with you when you got back from Iran, which was in mid-October of this year. And you had been there not quite a month, but for many weeks. And of course, you're from Iran, so you know the society. And when I was talking to you and asking you about the protests uh, against the hijab, the protests that were described as a revolution, perhaps, against the Islamic Republic, and certainly a, pro a movement led by young women, th this was the dominant narrative in the media. And you have been in Iran during other periods of mass protests, like the really large-scale Green Movement in 2009 after the re-election of Ahmadinejad. There was a massive movement that alleged that the election of Ahmadinejad was marred by corruption and fraud. It was a truly mass movement. So you were there in 2009. You witnessed this mass protest movement against the government. And so I was really taken when you said to me when you got back that all of the things that I was reading in the media, maybe not all, but most, were giving me, and as a consequence, all the people who were digesting their news or consuming their news from Western media outlets, you said it's basically a bunch of mythology, that it didn't conform at all to what you experienced. Um, anyway, I, I want to get started with that, Mazda, because if we were or one was reading the news or paying attention during that same time period, it would sound like the Islamic Republic government was about to be was about to fall, that major cities were going over to the revolution. Uh, anyway, let's just talk about what you actually observed. OK, thanks. I mean, that's a major thing. I'm glad you made the comparison, Brian, to the 2009 so-called Green Revolution. When I was there in that instance, there was no disputing the fact that there were hundreds of thousands in total millions of people marching in response to the election or re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And the demonstrators thought that uh, Mir Hossein Mousavi should have won. But in that instance, there was no question. I mean, you could see, I observed it, I witnessed it. There was videos and photos and everything of huge numbers of people. Um, so at the time, the issue was how to understand this movement versus what at the time was definitely a majority of the people who as indicated by the votes, supported Ahmadinejad. And it wasn't just the votes then. They had huge demonstrations at the time. But this recent example is uh, really a, um, like 90, 95% of it is like extreme exaggerations in a cyber campaign. Uh, what actually happened 
is in uh, late September, September, and we can talk about the details, um, but in late September, a um, young Kurdish woman by the name of Mahsa Amini died while in custody, well, in the hospital, but she collapsed while in custody, and uh, demonstrations uh, against the hijab, and specifically against the death of Mahsa Amini, arose. The first few days, you would see video of demonstrations, usually of modest size. I mean, I mean there were some really small ones and some in the hundreds. Um, but, you know, after a few days, it quickly, as has been the case in many, many cases in Iran, it quickly turned into a campaign of sabotage. And we can talk about the CIA and the Mossad and the Saudi influence and so forth. Um, where what could have been, you know, a campaign of, um, uh, you know, civil protests and peaceful demonstrations and so forth turned into very quickly a movement for the overthrow of the system. But the main thing is, even though by the Western media standards, uh, they call it mass protests since day one, there was uh, virtually no protest. While I was in Iran, I made it a point to go to the locations at the times when there were supposed to be protests and there was nothing. Now, to be clear, this is not to say that there is not, uh, you know, uh, popular support for the movement to overthrow the Islamic Republic, but what is termed in the West and particularly in the U.S. as a mass movement that has been going on for two months now or two and a half months right now, I mean, it's really been a... Um, uh, you know, the, the start of a couple of days of relatively small uh, protests and then a campaign of sabotage, starting fires, breaking windows, and in at least a couple of regions in the area of Sistan and Baluchistan and in Kurdistan, uh, you know, armed actions, uh, you know, uh, with people shooting at the security forces and so forth. But in terms of just calling this a peaceful protest of young women who are just being shot by the police, that's, you know, an alternate reality. That's not what's happening on the ground. Well, I want to read um, I want to read from The Washington Post, Mazda. Iranian students speak out as protests spread into university dining halls. Now, this paragraph, this article is about. It's about 30 paragraphs long. It's from November 5th, 2022. Iranian students speak out as protests spread into university dining halls. I'm going to read a little bit of the article. In Iran, sharing a meal can be a revolutionary act. University dining halls, which for decades have been gender-segregated spaces, have become a new front line in the country's uprising. Student ch students chanting, women, life, freedom, close quote, are risking expulsion, assault, and arrest in a struggle to eat lunch together. When authorities have closed campus cafeterias in retaliation, students have congregated outside for protest picnics. The cafeteria revolts are a small but symbolic part of the anti-government unrest that has swept Iran for nearly two months, now the longest-running demonstrations against the leaders of the Islamic Republic. As street, as, as street protests have ebbed and flowed, university students have maintained the movement's momentum. Okay, so that's November 5th, Mazda. Now, here's the 18th paragraph in the article. 18th paragraph. The Post, meaning the Washington Post, which does not have accreditation to report inside Iran, could not independently verify the students' accounts. I mean, so... In the 19th paragraph, after this eyewitness, this gripping narrative, in the 19th paragraph, we find out from the reporter, Miriam Berger, that actually she hasn't seen any of this and that they have no possible way to independently verify the student's account. The students are unnamed. They're anonymous sources. Uh, it doesn't mean, as you said, that people aren't uh, upset about the hijab rule that that Iranian society is obviously polarized. Um, all of that is true, but what what you're saying and what 
you can see clearly from the Washington Post article is that they're giving eyewitness accounts and then buried in the article is the notification that they actually have no capacity to independently verify any of it. So the mass movement of young people in dining halls might be true, but it might very well not be true. And what you're suggesting is, based on your eyewitness report, a lot of it may not be true. Well, you know, they've come up with, they've turned it into an art form. What has happened this time, which is different from the previous cases where there were some levels of protest, is there's Iran International. Iran International is a Saudi-funded, London-based, supposedly news organization. But the good thing about it is that it does away with any of the pretenses of objectivity or verifying the news or anything. Basically, they uh, manufacture the news and they spread it, um, and it's all with the sole objective of weakening and, from their perspective, hopefully overthrowing the Islamic Republic. What happens then is that the makers of the news, mostly Iran International, then they are quoted by BBC Farsi, uh, you know, which is, of course, the BBC funded by the British government, and Radio Farda, which is funded by the U.S., and, uh, you know, also Voice of America, and other Western outlets. And all they do is they list their source as Iran International, or sources cannot be verified, or people would not reveal their identity for fear of uh, retribution. So basically, um, what, what you have is the spreading of all kinds of rumors. Someone starts a rumor on social media, and then they just use each other as the source, and pretty soon, and I'm talking in uh, internet time, within a matter of minutes, this becomes fact. Um, you know, and this has been going on. There's been really ridiculous cases where this sort of uh, news manufacturing has been exposed. Um, one of the stunts that uh, Iran International, the Saudi-based supposedly news organization, pulled was they were showing uh, supposedly live coverage of um, women uh, in supposedly in Tehran being repressed, being caught for having insufficient hijab and kind of violently being pushed into a van. It, the, the program was rudely interrupted by the police, Turkish police, police in Istanbul, because what they were doing is that they were recording in Istanbul, but they had set it up so that it would pass as something that was happening in Iran. And so this was one of the news that they were manufacturing. So one of the things that's very challenging, though, is that whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or Western media, they look at the kind of news uh, that is to their liking, that fits in the um, really the agenda of uh, Western countries, the U.S. in particular, and you know, the, its European junior allies, and if the seemingly news matches what their agenda is, which is to show an ever-growing protest movement, they just go ahead and do it. And just to see, to kind of observe their supposedly their journalistic professionalism, they list something like you just mentioned in the article that you read on page 18, that, well, we haven't been able to independently verify this. And this goes across the board. All of the women that they've reported as having been killed by the Islamic Republic, it's all like that, or it's outright false. And, I mean, we can talk about that. Indeed. I, I want to talk about that uh, because you have, you know, I asked you, and, and I've seen some of your, some documents that you're working on, some coverage, some journalism that you're working on. It's basically a myths and facts kind of document where, um, the story about how the protests unfolded and the trigger for the protests. And again, you don't have to be a supporter of the Islamic Republic. That's not our point. And it's not our point to say we support in any way. I certainly don't, the, you know, like a, having a special dress code for women. There could be very divided, and I know there is very divided opinion about the headscarf, the hijab in Iranian society. 
but what I'm getting at is that a lot of what we saw in the news was actually completely contrived. Um, and the deaths of young people who were purportedly killed at protests, which are heart-wrenching stories, uh, you go through and sort of document how these are like basically just made up stories, which doesn't mean, of course, that there won't be brutality, that there's not repression. That's not the point. But a lot of what we're hearing as like the truth and dominant parts of the news story are in fact false. Now, I want to stop before I get back into the details with you, though, because as you're saying, this is an art form uh, a, a disinformation campaign coordinated by the Saudis, by Israeli Mossad, by the CIA. We have an audio clip. It's from a video, actually. It's an interview done in 1983 with CIA officer, ex-CIA officer at that time named Frank Snap, who in the early 1980s was quite famous. He had a no number of books. He was an analyst in the U.S. embassy with the CIA in Saigon. And he talks in this video, and we have other videos like it from John Stockwell, who was the Angola station chief during the 1970s war. But he talks about how the CIA actually conducted this kind of disinformation campaign and how it worked. He is the author, by the way, if people want to look him up, his, the, one of his more important books is called Decent Interval, an Insider's Account of Saigon's Indecent End. Uh, irreparable Harm, a firsthand account of how one agent took on the CIA in an epic battle over free speech. The CIA, when he was writing these books, tried to shut down Frank Snap. Anyway, Mazda, before we go back to the details in Iran, I want our audience to listen to this. 1983, Frank Snap, an important figure in the CIA, talking about how media disinformation actually works. You briefed the press, did you not, when you were there? Well, I had several jobs. One of my jobs was that of analyst. Uh, I also was an interrogator and indeed briefed the press when we, the CIA, wanted to uh, circulate disinformation on a particular issue. Disinformation is not necessarily, uh, not necessarily a lie. It may be a half-truth. And uh, we would pick out a journalist. I would go do the briefing and uh, hope that he would put the information in print. For instance, if we wanted to get uh, across to the American public that the North Vietnamese were building up their force structure in South Vietnam, I would go to a journalist and advise him that in the past uh, six months, X number of North Vietnamese forces had come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail system through southern Laos. Now, there is no way a journalist can check that information. So either he goes with the information or he doesn't, and ordinarily or usually the journalist would go with it because it, was, it looked like some kind of exclusive. And um, I would say our percentage uh, planning that kind of data was uh, 70 to 80 percent. The correspondents we targeted were those who had terrific influence, the most uh, respected journalists in Saigon, like Robert Chaplin of the New Yorker magazine, Kai's Beach uh, of the Los Angeles Times from time to time, and also he worked for the Chicago Daily News. Uh, Bud Merrick of U.S. News and World Report, uh, Malcolm Brown of the New York Times, uh, even Maynard Parker of Newsweek magazine. Uh, we would uh, go after these gentlemen. Uh, I would uh, be directed to cultivate them, to spend time with them at uh, the Caravel Hotel or the Continental Hotel, to socialize with them, and, and slowly but surely to try to gain their confidence by dolloping out uh, valid information, information which was true. And then I would drop in a, into a conversation the data that we wanted to get across which might not be true. Uh, one piece of data, for instance, uh, that uh, we managed to plan in the New Yorker magazine had to do with uh, a supposed North Vietnamese effort in 1973 to develop airfields along the border of South Vietnam. The reason we wanted to plant this information was that uh, we were trying to persuade the U.S. Congress that Saigon should uh, be continued to, uh, should continue to get a great deal of aid. Uh, and that uh, the North Vietnamese were the chief violators of the ceasefire accord. That was printed 
in uh, the New Yorker magazine under the byline of Robert Chaplin, as indeed was a great deal of such information which, uh, which we tried to circulate. If I planted a piece of information with a reporter, I would ordinarily then try to create an environment in which he could not check the information. I would go to the British ambassador and brief him on the disinformation I had just given the reporter. So when the reporter wanted to cross-check what I told him with, uh, say, the British ambassador, New Zealand ambassador, or what have you, he would get false confirmation, the same message coming back at him. He'd say, aha, I've got proof that Frank Snap told me the truth, when in fact what he'd gotten was simply an echo of what uh, I'd given him in the first place via the British ambassador or other of our friendly diplomatic contacts. I am as an ex-CI agent uh, opposed to the disinformation activities uh, in which I was involved. I admit that I was involved and I think it uh, uh, served no useful purpose uh, propagandizing the American uh, public or Congress is not the CIA's job. So Mazda, uh, that's Frank Snap. He's saying, you know, this was 1983. Here we are 40 years later. And this kind of disinformation campaign that the CIA was conducting has really, truly become an art form. And there's a lot of money in it. And there's a lot of orchestration that goes on in it. And it doesn't mean that everything is untrue, but the the ability to shape the narrative by including untrue things makes you know, all the difference. Let's let's talk, for instance, this the recent protests, the this movement that started. It was again the this young woman, Masa Amini, uh Kurdish, she dies in custody. And there's no doubt that she's dead. She did die and she was in custody. And she had been brought into custody by the morality police. And so the the impression is that she was beaten. She was brutalized in some way, even if she had a pre-existing health condition. Uh, something happened there that made her die. And let's just start there, because, of course, that's the trigger. And then all of this media coverage and also social media coverage starts to take shape over her death. So let's talk about the morality police. Are people getting roughed up? Are they getting brutalized? Who are the morality police? What happened to her? Because I've seen a video where she appears to be walking sort of normally. She doesn't look to be in distress and she collapses. Anyway, let's just get started with the triggering event with the death of Masa Amini. Sure. As you said, it's, uh, you know, Masa Amini dying triggered the whole thing i'll add a piece to that and that's the fact that the radio the the you know the u.s funded radio station interviewed Massa's dad uh, and asked whether or not she had had any medical conditions at the time that could have caused her death and the dad said no the only thing that she had ever had was like common colds so then that's the thing that triggered it became uh, uh, obvious based on the dad's what turned out to be completely false statement that she must have been roughed up she must have been beaten up now let me just say this the, you know the um uh i guess they can be called the guidance squads it's mainly um women uh, in the hijab uh, who um, go around to like major squares and intersections, and um, what they do is they they look at women who are um, you know insufficiently covered, basically women who are wearing uh, Western clothes and so forth, and they detain them. And as you've said, Brian, and I will say that that's absolutely not something that I support. Women, of course, have the right to. Uh, dress as they please. But we have to still put this in context. Over the years, really the decades, this has become a thing, particularly in northern Tehran, which is the affluent part of Tehran, where women tend to not like uh, any aspect of the hijab or even wearing the headscarf. And so when they um, uh, go around, uh, they may get detained. And, you know, the and I've talked to several women over the years, long before this ever happened, 
And the experience is not an intense experience. They sit in a van, they go to a station. Uh, you know, it's like a 10, 15 minute van ride. There's several, several stations. Once there, they make you uh, sign a pledge that you will dress appropriately the next time. Um, if prior to the Mahsa Amini case, if you mentioned to any people, including the people who full-heartedly support the so-called revolution, the attempt to overthrow the Islamic Republic, if you ask any of them if they've been roughed up or beaten up or hit with a baton or anything, they would have laughed at you because they sit in the back of a van. There's actually no one in the back of a van with them. And the people who do the detaining are generally women. And the whole ordeal takes an hour, hour and a half. So even from that perspective, it seems highly, highly improbable that someone would be roughed up for you know, insufficiently wearing the hijab. But it's important to point out, in the case of Mahsa Amini, it's been that the state has produced overwhelming evidence. Mahsa Amini, in 2016, uh, underwent a brain surgery to remove a tumor. Um, the state has uh, published uh, documents, records, through her uh, you know, national health care records that even in recent months, she had had several appointments with, um, uh, you know, specialist doctors for her condition. They have produced a handwritten letter by Mahsa's father, the same person who said, oh, she had never had any condition other than the common cold. Um, he had written a letter to his employer, this is a few years ago, saying that I should not be transferred from Tabriz, which is a big city with, you know, pretty advanced medical facilities, um, requesting he should not be transferred to his native Kurdistan because his daughter needed the specialist care that was available in Tabriz and not so much in Safez, where they were from. Um, the autopsy report and the forensics also pointed out there was the death of Mahsa Amini had nothing to do with blunt force or anything like that, but it had to do with the complications resulting from her brain condition. All of this evidence is readily available. It has not been disputed by the BBC 4C or Iran International or Voice of America or anybody. The family has been on several interviews, the father, the brother, and they have not disputed any of this. In fact, they've been forced to kind of apologize. Well, you know, I was overcome by emotions and that kind of a thing. So the case of Mahsa Amini, again, it's not even a disputed case. It is very obvious that this person was not beaten up. She was not roughed up. And the cause of death was her, you know, underlying medical condition. But the thing is, Brian, because of the overwhelming dominance of pro-Western media, particularly in social media and on satellite TV and so forth, the stuff that it just went over, which is, you know, pretty available, most people haven't even heard of it, especially the supporters of this movement haven't heard of it. And in the West, it's, you know, it's, as, it's a known fact that Mahsa Amini was killed by the, you know, the morality uh, squads or the guidance squads. So it's a lot of it has to do with just finding of facts. And I like the fact that uh, Frank Snap mentioned that misinformation doesn't have to be complete lies. It could be half-truths. And part of the thing that the media campaign is doing is these half-truths. Yes, she was detained. Yes, she collapsed at uh, that center. Uh, but no, the cause of her collapse had nothing to do with her being killed. Uh, and by the way, there's witnesses before and after and during the van ride. So there's, there was no point at which she was left alone that she could be roughed up by any policeman. And again, the, you have, look at the history of uh, these squads and they don't beat up on people. It's, it's, that's not their uh, function. Um, you mentioned that her family is from Kurdistan. In Iran, Mazda, when you look at the different opposition forces to the current government, there are opposition forces to people who, as you mentioned, in northern Tehran in particular, a more middle class area, more affluent area. Some people still oppose, you know, the overthrow of the Shah from the revolution that took place in 1979. There are other people who maybe supported the revolution, but became disillusioned 
with the new government. There might be people who are devoutly secular and opposed to any sort of theocratic or religious government of any type. Uh, There may be people also in Kurdistan or in Baluchistan or in other some of the other non-central areas where minority people are dominant or the majority they have their own struggles ongoing struggles for autonomy we know the kurdish struggle in particular it's not just in iran it was also in iraq it was in syria in turkey in the areas where there's a very large concentration of kurdish people who constitute a minority in these countries if 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 after world war 1 the victors of world war 1 the imperialists who won the war, had reconfigured the Middle East differently from the way they did configure it. Certainly the Kurds with a common culture, common language, and contiguous territory could have been provided a state, you know, an independent state that could have been part of Turkey, Syria, Iran, Iraq. You look at that map, this is Kurdish areas. And so there's the aspirations of autonomy or independence or some variation of that within the Kurdish regions. In the case of Iran, the struggle between the Kurds and the central government during the period of the Shah was very intense. As a matter of fact, the Iraqi government at that time was supporting the Kurds in Iran in their fight against the central government. And later, during the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, the Kurdish areas in Iraq, many of them fought along with the Iranians. Anyway, the Kurds are the the struggle of the Kurds or the people in Baluchistan, that's something different than the struggle for secularism or against the Islamic Republic for some of these other issues. This is an enduring struggle of national minority peoples. But in the current media, it's all conflated. It's all considered one mass movement rather than the reality, which is that these are intersecting uh, phenomena that have a political impact. Anyway, help explain that for the audience, if you could. Yes, I actually, I think you um, you did a great job uh, setting up the context. You know, it's very interesting because the opposition movement is uh, generally, especially by the lines being spread among their supporters, is very much Persian-centric in its ideology and they emphasize um, their supposed Aryan roots, which of which they're proud. And I, I, we know that the Pahlavi dynasty, the Shah and his father, emphasized that, that Iranians were Aryans. So those um, national issues have existed for a long time. I'll add to that the fact that the Islamic Republic heavily emphasizes its Shia Islamic roots and its clerical uh, connections and its uh, reactionary social policies, which is another thing because in Kurdistan and also in Baluchistan, the majority of the population are Sunni, not Shia Islam. So that creates another division. So there's been a separatist movement, as you said, Brian, since the beginning of the revolution and certainly for many years prior to the revolution. And this separatist movement, or at least movement for... um, self-rule or autonomy has been ongoing and really has been um, something that's been used by the U.S. You mentioned the example of the Iraqi government. The U.S. government during the time of the Shah, of course, absolutely supported the Shah because the Shah was installed uh, into power in a CIA 1953 coup. So the U.S. did not support the Kurdish movement in Iran. But at the same time, Iraq had had its 1958 revolutionary movement, the coup that resulted in a a revolutionary transformation of society. So the U.S. did want the Iraqi state overthrown. Therefore, the U.S. supported the Iraqi Kurds. Interestingly, some of the weapons and material things that were provided to the Kurds in Iraq by the U.S. were transported through Iran's Kurdistan. At the time, Iran's Kurdistan were the bad Kurds as far as the the U.S. was concerned, and the Iraqi Kurds were the good Kurds. And of course, the majority of the Kurdish population lives in Turkey, which is a NATO member and so forth. Now, in the case of Iran, going back to Iran, there there has been this movement 
and Mahsa Amini's family, the father, the brother certainly, who goes around wearing a T-shirt with Kumele insignia. Kumele is one of the major um, political forces that has been waging an armed struggle against the Tehran government, the Islamic Republic, since the beginning of the revolution in 1979. And that's a, a Kurdish armed struggle. That's a Kurdish armed struggle that has been ongoing. It has ebbed and flowed, but it has been ongoing since the 1979 revolution. And the family apparently is a supporter of the Kumele. And so when the father said, my daughter has had no condition, at that point, it is quite possible that he had been approached by supporters of Kumele or by elements tied to the Saudis or the Israelis and so forth, and asked to not say anything about Massa's condition to make her the first in what became a series, an ongoing series of young women who have died for by various causes, but ones who have been portrayed by, the, by these pro-West media as people who have been uh, assassinated in cold blood by the Islamic Republic. So those issues in the area of Kurdistan, as well as Baluchistan, there has been development. There has been significantly more development than there was before the revolution. Uh, but again, the movement is ongoing. And again, it doesn't help that the Islamic Republic, even though broadly independent, and even though they're not, they're not overtly uh, oppressing the you know, religious freedoms of the Sunni Muslims, as well as, you know, Christians, Zoroastrians, and Jews in Iran. At the same time, the emphasis on the Shia component of the ideology obviously leaves out the non-Shia, so it creates another incentive, another motivation for people to be opposed to the Islamic Republic. Mazda, last week I interviewed uh, Ting's Chak from Dengsheng News in Beijing about how the U.S. was suddenly in love with protests as long as they were taking place in China. And we talked to her about the myths and facts of the Chinese protests, because according to her, the protests were basically relatively small. Demographically, they were people who were younger, people who were less afraid of COVID, who were you know, sick and tired of lockdowns and the exhausting elements of the management of the epidemic with zero COVID. But she was making the argument that the presentation in the Western media about the protests was essentially false because of the exaggerations, like an element of truth, as we've talked about, and as Frank Snepp talked about, not completely untrue, but in other words, taking truths and untruths and half-truths and then shaping a narrative. And also she made the point that the government in China was actually easing. They had the, what's called the 20 measures. They were easing the zero COVID protocol. So they were starting to open up and there was unevenness within and in different local areas about how that was being implemented. But people were getting one message from the federal government, the national government, we're going to ease. And then in some cases, the local governments weren't easing as quickly as people thought, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, China, big country, complex society, not a simple narrative that the masses were suddenly rising up against zero COVID. Again, the Chinese government unlike the US government, which basically, you know, threw in the towel right away and allowed more than a million people to die, the Chinese government has been motivated largely to save human lives. Anyway, here we are, Iran, talking the next week after our interview with Tings Chak about Iran. U.S. loves protests in Iran. They love the protests that took place in Cuba a year and a half ago. The U.S. imposes economic sanctions on Iran or on Cuba and on Venezuela, and then some parts of the population are either already against the government or against the, the sanctions regime that makes life hard. And then when they go into the streets, the U.S. says, wow, these people are freedom fighters. Meanwhile, here in the United States, you know, we get treated with tear gas and billy clubs and all sorts of non-lethal uh, weapons and some lethal weapons. Anyway, it's it's very, very political. That's my point. The gov U.S. government and the U.S. mainstream media is sort of embellishing protests in some areas because these are the countries that the U.S. has targeted for overthrow. In 1953, you mentioned the U.S. carried out regime change, CIA, British intelligence-led 
covert operations. They carried out a coup d'etat after two years of very intense economic sanctions on the on the then democratically elected government of Iran. And when the government was finally overthrown in this bloody coup d'etat, the New York Times and the Washington Post, they were crowing about it. They were like, look, we've taught Iran a lesson. I'm looking at, a, uh, I'm looking at what the New York Times actually wrote in 1954 about the coup. Here's what the New York Times said. This is 1954. Underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their number, which goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. And of course, Mazda, the Iranian government's crime and sin at that time was it nationalized BP, British Petroleum, uh, what was then called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, and the Mazagdei government, which was overthrown by this coup, had said, well, look, let's use oil and oil profits to help Iranians get out of poverty. Anyway, the selectivity, the targeting, the manipulation of genuine feelings and emotions uh, for the purposes of something else, for the purpose of regime change. And, you know, uh, Brian, the hypocrisy is all over the place. I mean, I like the fact that the U.S. with over a, a million deaths over almost a million, one million, one hundred thousand, is lecturing China uh, uh, about how to uh, conduct its uh, government reaction to a uh, health emergency. And you know that the complete success of China in dealing with COVID is completely lost. In the case of the U.S. approach to Iran, it's the same thing. When the Shah was in power, the Shah that the CIA had installed, the Shah himself was such an uh, incompetent element that they had him stay out of the country. He was in Baghdad when they carried out the coup because the U.S. didn't want the Shah to get in the way. But when the Shah was in power between 1953 and 1979, no simple acts of protest were uh, tolerated, even you know, being in possession of a leaflet or many kinds of books would result in being imprisoned and tortured by the Savak. The Savak was the Shah's intelligence uh, or, you know, kind of Iran's CIA or Mossad, which Amnesty International at the time called the worst human rights violator of the world. But coming to today, the U.S. It becomes a um, supporter of any kind of protest and it's, it, it goes in the framing of the question as well. Here's the thing. What is going on in Iran is not peaceful protest. And most of it is not even protest of any kind. Like I said, it's armed elements in many instances shooting at the security forces. I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers of, uh, you know, uh, that the uh, so-called human rights organizations are putting on. And I'm saying... Um, so-called human rights organizations, because what's happened is that there's a couple that have popped up that have their offices in Europe, in Belgium, like Iran Human Rights. They, they, you know, they kind of give themselves the credibility of a like a human rights organization, objectively reporting the data, and they are anything but. They're an opposition force. But one of the things that they had was they reported, I forget what number, which was based on nothing, of dead, including. 20 of the security forces. And, you know, when I was looking at that, I, I, I thought, wait a minute, as far as your reports and the similar media outlets are concerned, these are all peaceful, peaceful protests that the state is just opening fire on. If that's the case, how did 20 members of the security forces were killed? Um, how do peaceful protesters kill 20 security forces? The fact is that the number of people killed by, you know, among the security forces is much higher than 20. And the fact is that most of these things that are that are supposedly passing as protests are armed actions. And in Iran, the reason we know these are orchestrated by elements, whether it's the CIA or Mossad or Saudi Arabia, is that in Iran, people don't have weapons. People don't have rifles or guns or revolvers. It's illegal. And even criminal elements usually have knives or machetes at worst. So when you have people in many cases, and this is in videos all over social media, opening fire, 
you know that that's the involvement of not peaceful protesters, but paid elements. And this is especially happening in Kurdistan and Baluchistan. And when you say, Brian, that it's conflated, these things have really nothing to do with the protest that women have, um, you know, women who don't wear the hijab have over the hijab requirement or, uh, you know, the, the squads. Uh, it's really a issue that's entirely different. And it is an armed struggle. But when, you know, these uh, pro-West media outlets want to create and reinforce the narrative of an ongoing protest movement, it's all conflated. It, they make it sound like it's all the same. They make it sound like people in Baluchistan or people in Kurdistan are rising in support for, uh, you know, the uh, hijab protests, whereas, in fact, in these areas, the hijab is not an issue. The so-called morality squads or the guidance squads either do not exist or are quite inactive. And, you know, in more traditional parts of Iran, the hijab is not an issue because regardless of whether or not the central government tries to enforce anything, uh, that's the kind of, uh, you know, women wear the hijab regardless. So, yes, they've been conflated, but also to support this false image, this manufactured image of people rising up in all parts of Iran in support of women. Mazda, let's talk about the the political and social character of the Iranian government. Um, there are contradictory features that are very observable, I would say. One is that when the, when the Iranian revolution happened in 1979, it toppled a U.S.-backed dictatorship, the Shah. And the Shah had been imposed on the Iranian people because of the CIA and British intelligence carrying out this bloody coup following years, a couple of years of economic sanctions, a similar game plan or playbook that is being used now to try to topple the Iranian government. And when the, when the revolution happened, there was communists, there were young radical students who were you know, moving or in the direction of communism or Marxism or Maoism. At the same time, there was the clerical establishment that had its own agenda. There was a falling, at first there appeared to be a united front against the Shah, but then the left was basically vanquished in the 1980s. There was a lot of terrible repression. The United States during the 1980s, during the Iran-Iraq war, was supporting the war. The U.S. wanted both sides to kind of kill each other. As Henry Kissinger said, we hope they each kill each other. The U.S. shared some intelligence with and some and provided some small amount of weapons for the Iranian government, while at the same time completely coordinating the Iraqi military operation against Iran. It was a terrible period, the Iran-Iraq war, and hundreds of thousands of people died. In the last 20 years, the Iranian government has clearly stabilized. It's also, you know, carried out policies in terms of its international foreign policy that have sort of made the United States continually unhappy. It's provided support for Venezuela. It has good relations with Russia, good relations with China. It is, uh, in the case of Syria, pro-Iranian forces teamed up with you know, the Syrian Arab army and Hezbollah and others to fight against the counter-revolutionary forces that were trying to destroy the Assad government. And they were supported in turn by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Anyway, the, the Iranian government has emerged as an independent player, and it's a major country, a big country, big population, well-educated population with oil and water and military capacity. So it functions as a regional power and an independent force globally. And it seems to us on our program that that is by the U.S. measure, that's its real sin, is that it's strong enough to be a real power and it's independent of U.S. imperialism. And from the point of view of the left and socialists, you can recognize this in an objective way and recognize the importance of that without having to be, you know, complete 
sort of cheerleaders for everything that the uh, Iranian government does. On, on the contrary, you can be a fierce critic, as you could be a fierce critic of other governments, but recognizing that as an independent regional power that is not going along, not functioning as a proxy of U.S. imperialism, that it has earned the sort of enemy status by the United States. And that's the reason, that's the real reason the U.S. government and the U.S. mainstream media and the Saudis and the Israeli and Israeli intelligence are basically at war with Iran. It's not really because of its domestic policy as much as its international policy. Well, Brian, I personally was, uh, uh, you know, a small part of the left movement to try to overthrow the Islamic Republic in the early years of the revolution and build socialism. Well, that did not happen. And, you know, in retrospect, uh, the left did not really have the popular support or the kind of organization for that to have been a realistic goal at the time. But the thing is that the way that the way we have to look at it now is that if we looked at the U.S. support and not just the U.S. Western imperialist as well support for what they're calling a women's movement, and in reality, it's a movement uh, for regime change and for a return to the Shah's rule or something similar to that before the revolution. But if we looked at, uh, you know, the appearances, it would seem as if the U.S. policy doesn't make sense or is contradictory. How is it that the U.S. so enthusiastically supports the women's movement in Iran against the hijab, whereas it fully supports Saudi Arabia, which is not a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. It is an ultra-reactionary ultra monarchy. Women only recently gained the right to even drive. Women have to struggle to even gain basic education, much less higher education. In Iran, 60% of college students are women. Women are scientists, doctors, engineers, university professors, in all kinds of professions and in all aspects of society. How is it that the U.S. supports women's movement, what it calls the women's movement in Iran, and not in Saudi Arabia or Qatar or United Arab Emirates or Kuwait or Oman? And the answer is that they don't have a problem with the reactionary policies of the Islamic Republic. And there are certainly many reactionary social policies uh, that the Islamic Republic pursues. The problem is its independence. The problem is it creates an obstacle to capital penetration to Iran. Corporations are not free to go there. Iran is not free in that sense. There are no McDonald's, there's no Starbucks in there. And the problem is the alliance of Iran internationally with the likes of Venezuela and Cuba. The problem is the support that the Iranian government provides to the Palestinian movement. And so the U.S. policy towards Iran, as well as Israel's and the rest, actually makes sense and it's quite consistent when you look at their geopolitical interests and the corporations and the big banks that they represent. It only doesn't make sense and seems contradictory if we take at face value their supposed support for women's rights in Iran. Mazda, let's you know, as we kind of move towards the end here, I want to get your take on on the resumed negotiations over the uh, JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. That was the negotiated agreement that the Obama administration spearheaded with the Iranian government. And the, the agreement, for those who are newer to this, for maybe younger folks, the agreement basically was that Iran would allow international inspectors to come in and carry out very intrusive inspections of Iran's nuclear facilities. And by nuclear facilities, I'm talking about nuclear energy facilities, not nuclear weapons. The Iranian government does not have nuclear weapons. It says it doesn't want nuclear weapons. But the U.S. insisted that in order to lift international sanctions 
and U.S. unilateral sanctions, and the international sanctions are basically U.S. sanctions too, in order for Iran to be able to be reintegrated into the world economy, Iran would have to go through this process of basically sacrificing some of its sovereignty. I mean, the U.S. would never, you know, in, in mutually allow foreign countries to come in and inspect its nuclear facilities, but insisted that Iran do it. So Iran did do it. And the, the, the agreement was signed, and it was Russia, China, France, Britain, the United States, and Germany, and Iran. And then Donald Trump came in after Obama left office and ripped up the agreement and said it was the worst deal ever. And the Europeans who wanted to trade with Iran refused to you know, stand up to Trump. They were just like little puppy dogs. They allowed their own national trading interests to be sacrificed because they wouldn't defy Trump. Then Biden came in and he was Obama's vice president. So presumably you would think, well, he would want the same policy as Obama, meaning the joint comprehensive plan of action. Iran allows intrusive inspections and in exchange has sanctions lifted. But where is it at? I mean, it's gone on and on. The Biden administration, well, actually, even the Obama administration didn't live up to the deal. They imposed even new sanctions for with some other pretexts. Anyway, just bring us up to speed, if you would, Mazda, about where these negotiations stand and what's been the impact of these international economic sanctions on Iran. Well, let's start with the absolute hypocrisy of the U.S. with thousands of nuclear weapons and France and the British uh, imposing on Iran sanctions based on the premise that someone in Iran has wanted in the past or will want in the future to build nuclear weapons. Countries that have nuclear weapons are sanctioning countries that don't have a country that doesn't have a nuclear weapon. But basically... Uh, we might have thought that as uh, Trump illegally took the U.S. out of the JCPOA, and I say illegally because the JCPOA has very specific provisions of what happens if one of the signatories has a grievance. It is not an option for a subsequent leader, a president, a prime minister of any of the signatories to say, I just don't like this agreement, so I think I'll just get out. Uh, but people might have thought, as you said, Brian, that Biden, having been the vice president to Obama and has, have, having been at least marginally involved in that decision, to just restore the JCPOA and remove the sanctions. As it turned out, Biden took a very hardball approach of uh, saying, OK, well, we want new concessions. Uh, we want to talk about ballistic missiles. And not only that. The Iranian government was saying, okay, from the time that you guys, the U.S., uh, violated the JCPOA till now, several new entities have been added to the list of the sanctions, including the entirety of the Revolutionary Guard, which is the, really the biggest chunk of the Iranian military. And also because of the, at least in part because of the sanctions, it is one of the biggest uh, players in the construction projects, building dams, bridges, roads, all kinds of things. So Iran's government is saying, based on the, the additions to the list of sanctioned entities, um, even if you remove the sanctions on the surface, based on these new sanctions, uh, it can be impossible for us to trade on the international market. And I'll remind our listeners, it's not just trade with the U.S. that is sanctioned. Anyone, any entity, government or corporation or private entity from any country can be punished by the U.S. government in the, you know, in the millions or even billions of dollars for trading in Iran. So it's shutting um, down any um, methods of openly and legally trading on the international market. So Iran, Iran's request or demand in the negotiations is to just even return to what the JCPOA was when it was signed in 2015. And the Biden administration has not been willing to do that. And now with, the, um, with this movement and new effort to overthrow the Islamic Republic, I'm afraid it's much less likely for the JCPOA to be resumed because 
presumably Biden will be under domestic pressure to say, well, you know, we're just about to overthrow the Islamic Republic. Why are you signing uh, an agreement or why are you returning to an agreement with them? Now, the sanctions on Iran, it, just like the case of, of course, the sanctions are different, um, but the sanctions on Cuba, the sanctions on the uh, North Korea, the DPRK, the sanctions, the criminal sanctions that were placed on Iraq, it makes the economic life very difficult for the country. And as a result, it makes it easier for, you know, corruption by various elements because within the Islamic Republic of Iran, because it's harder to trade on the open market and you have to deal with cash and you have to give individual cash to leave the country, all of those things. But they turn around and use the problems caused by the sanctions and the inflation and the drop in the value of the Iranian currency, the rial. They use that as another piece of evidence of uh, poor management, uh, mismanagement, and bad um, governance on the part of the Islamic Republic. The sanctions have been very comprehensive. The Islamic Republic has found ways to work around it in, a, in many, many different ways, but the reality is they're not exporting anywhere near the amount of oil that they would have liked to, and they're selling at below market values, and it's impacting exports of many other commodities. Many international traders are staying away from Iran altogether out of fear of being sanctioned by the U.S. And while it's not a life and death situation, the ongoing sanctions have made it very difficult, if not impossible, for the Iranian economy to grow, which itself and the inflation associated with that is also feeding into the dissatisfaction with the status quo within Iran. All right, we're going to leave it right there. We've been talking with Mazda Majidi. Mazda is a journalist. He's an educator. He's also an author. Uh, Mazda, it was 10 years ago that you and I co-authored a small book called Socialists in War, Two Opposing Trends. Uh, that was a polemic against those on the left who were taking what we believe to be a very pro-imperialist position when it came to the Syria conflict. And I think it's very important for people who want to be anti-imperialists and socialists who want to uh, pursue anti-imperialist policies to be very, very aware that no matter who you are, the impact of the bourgeois media and the disinformation campaign can be extremely profound in terms of shaping consciousness. And for the, some on the left, it's very hard to stand up against the prevailing dominant narrative, especially when it's reinforced as propaganda is being reinforced right now against Iran. But to recognize that for people living in the United States, when you have a government that speaks in our name and carries out economic sanctions that are sort of a slow motion form of mass murder, sanctions that are designed to deprive countries of sovereignty and self-determination, and trying to destroy all of those independent governments that offer an alternative path to U.S. unipolar domination, it's very, very important that we be able to stand up to this kind of propaganda. And Mazda, without shows like this and without the coverage or the counter coverage that you're providing, it's very hard for people not to get lost. And I, I think that's, in a way, the core message. You don't have to be a supporter of the Islamic government's policies, social policies, but you do need to recognize that U.S. imperialism, including its mainstream media, has its own agenda, and it has nothing to do with women. It has nothing to do with women's rights. It has nothing to do with human rights. It has nothing to do with people's rights. It's all about imperialist domination. With that said, I'll give you the final word. Uh, no, I very much appreciate your comments, Brian. I would just say this. When I'm talking to people, especially young people, who I know otherwise are opposed to U.S. imperialism, people who've been opposed to the U.S. war on Iraq, to the NATO bombing of Libya, people who understand what the U.S. government is doing within the U.S., in the cities with the police murder and terrorism and so forth, I ask him, why is it that 
you know, the U.S. is supporting a genuine revolution in Iran. How does that make sense when imperialism, by its very class nature, does not want revolution? They want, you know, the things to happen in particularly in third world countries or oppressed countries, things to happen in a way that benefits them, that, you know, uh, helps their bottom line. How is it that this the U.S. government is supporting a supposedly what they call a women-led revolution in Iran, yet they do everything they can to support the Saudi monarchy, for example, or the apartheid state, the settler state of Israel? If you see a contradiction there, then you should have to re-evaluate your support that is based on your support for a movement in Iran, and that support in reality is based on an alternate uh, version of the things, uh, of how things are going. It's based on a false narrative that has very little resemblance to reality. So if we re-evaluate and look at the facts and look for evidence for the mass movements, look for evidence for the Islamic Republic opening fire on demonstrators, of which there's no video evidence, then, you know, uh, we'll be on our way to uh, kind of coming to a more realistic understanding of uh, what is really happening. That was Bazda Majidi, author, journalist, and educator. You're listening to The Socialist Program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate